Welcome to the latest episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. My guest today is Anil Valarapali, Chief Executive, I beg your pardon, Chief Finance Officer at Airbase. Now, I just promoted you without you knowing. Chief Financial Officer at Airbase, a spend management software company. Now, Anil's career has taken him through a number of software companies, which have all seen rapid growth. So I think some interesting insights I'm hoping to get out of this. So join me in welcoming Anil to the Forward Thinking CFO. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, and I appreciate the promotion. Okay, so uh, I think you've got something of a unique perspective here because you, being a CFO, you you know you're playing that role in your own organisation, but you're also working at a company that aims at streamlining finance processes for CFOs and, and finance departments. So let's start with you telling us a bit about how you got into that CFO role and, and your background. Yeah, look, uh, I appreciate the question. You know, my background, similar to many folks on the finance side, I came up the investment banking track. I originally did a few years of uh, mergers and acquisitions, investment banking, and even more specifically, I did that for software and technology businesses. So the majority of companies I worked with were enterprise software companies, and you're talking about the late 2000s, early 2010s. One of the companies I advised actually decided to go public instead of sell itself, and that company was called Guidewire Software. And we played a, a role in their IPO, and then also uh, subsequently I joined the company about a couple of weeks after their IPO. At that business, I was asked to lead corporate development and strategy for the company and be the founding team member for that, which is a pretty fun role in that it ended up being a catch-all role. So in that, the CEO and CEO asked me to also work on global sales operations, strategy, finance, pricing, and, and kind of owning the long-range plan for the company as well. So the financial plan for the business. And so, you know, it was a fun five years there and, and saw that company grow from, call it five, 600 employees to about 2,500 employees and, and, and you know, a very healthy public business. Today, about 20% of the world's property and casualty insurance is filtered and, and run through Guidewire software, which handles all of the policy billing and claims for an insurer, which is basically the guts of how an insurer operates. You know, I went uh, from there, I went even smaller after being at that company to a company called uh, Mapbox, where my the COO president, Roy Eng, gave me a call. He actually was my wife's boss at a prior company and asked me to come lead finance for the business. And I'd never heard of Mapbox, but uh, for me, it was interesting in that it was a high growth business that was called uh, 120 employees or so, but scaling really quickly. And that company was kind of a competitor to Google Maps and Apple Maps and Bing Maps and all of those mapping businesses out there, but it was doing it from an open source perspective. So developers really preferred Mapbox as that it was a more secure version of leveraging a map and it wasn't reselling your data on the back end, similar, unlike, call it, the Googles and Microsofts and whatnot. And so, you know, that company scaled from about 120 to about 450, 500 employees, but actually around 550 by the time I left. And I went even smaller again to a company called Mattermost, which was on the same open source theme, but secure collaboration. So think about Slack, but for the White House, for the Department of Defense, for Bank of America, et cetera. And it was through those experiences being as those companies that I felt underserved as a finance operator with the tooling I had available at my hands. And so I actually, you know, met Thejo, our CEO founder here at Airbase about five years ago. And he was trying to pitch me on the benefits of, of Airbase. And 
he and I really gelled on that the problem that we were solving, which is call it consolidating all non-payroll spend into a single software solution, is that it's a software workflow issue. It is not a credit or a debt issue, you know, which leads with a charge card or something to that effect. It was a software workflow issue. And so, you know, about two and a half years ago, I uh, I jumped over here to Airbase and and I've been enjoying it ever since. And you know, our CEO, founder, and myself uh, have had a close relationship in building this business, as well as the broader leadership team. And and for me, it's a unique opportunity. And that, as you mentioned, I'm the CFO for a company that sells software to CFOs. And so that comes with a unique perspective on how can I more deeply help the company. So we call ourselves Customer Zero as an example of our product. And so we spend a lot of our team with the product uh, time with the product team. I spend a lot of my time with customers. Right. So I would say probably 20% of my time is with customers directly, whether that be prospects or existing customers. So that's a bit of the flavor of how I got here. Yeah. Interesting. Thanks for that. And yeah, and it was a, more a sort of investment banking early on. Was that right? So, so that kind of got you into, into that. Three years plus of investment banking and then called the last uh, 12 years or so operating. Right. And, yeah, and yeah, finance roles. Yeah. Um, so, so I think uh, what we hear about, and we've heard from previous guests as well, is that you know automating finance is important, and you know, it's all over the press, it's all over LinkedIn, it's everywhere. So, and and uh, with Airbase being a company that's playing a, a, an important role in that, perhaps you could tell us a bit about how that works. You know how how Airbase is doing that. Yeah, and so look, I know that there are there are many areas for which in in finance operations we can have automation. Right. So there's accounts receivable or billing is what we call it. Call it modeling and FPA automation. Call it reporting and data and analytics automation. So think about your data warehouse and like your DBTs sitting on top and, and your visualization tools like your tableaus sitting on top of that. Re, really here at Airbase, what we're doing is we're consolidating all of a company's non-payroll spend, as I mentioned, which comes in to help put context to it. Companies spend money in usually three, four different ways. One is you pay your employees. The second is you pay your vendors, right? And your vendors that you that you owe money to on whatever period or terms. Third is that you need to reimburse your employees for their expense reports and their the dollars they spent on company behalf. And four is that you have these physical cards, which are now also virtual cards that you can use to pay vendors. So physical and virtual corporate cards. And so really what Airbase is doing is taking all of the non-payroll side and consolidating that into one software solution. And so, you know, we do that through four main modules that we sell or the platform as a whole. One module is the intake side of it, which we have called guided procurement. And so think about that as the, the problem where you have an individual like uh, an employee in marketing who wants to purchase a software. In the majority of companies, that is you know chaotic to figure out how to spend company dollars, how to even sign this vendor up, who do I go to? As an example, you generally end up having to go to your manager, your FP&A partner to see if you have budget, accounting to get payment term information, legal to review the agreement, IT to approve the tool itself, maybe even InfoSec to look at the data privacy side of things. And so all of that is happening in emails and Slack and Teams and phone calls and whatnot. And so what 
the guided procurement tool is doing the modules. It's taking the chaos out of it. It's putting all that collaboration into Airbase itself with the proper approvals and notes, with document management, et cetera, being a part of it. And so, as I mentioned, it's taking the chaos away. So as an example with guided procurement, you're able to see that in companies that don't have a tool like guided procurement, it generally takes 30 to 45 days to have that approval happen the approval happen. With guided procurement, we're seeing companies able to do that within 48 to 72 hours, right? So not only are you getting time efficiency for the company in terms of how you spend dollars, but you're actually spending to plan. So that's one module guided procurement. The second is AP automation. And so that's accounts payable. That's how you pay your vendors, right? And so that goes, that's with all the rich, call it approvals, workflows internally, but that's also how you pay your vendors, right? So do you pay via ACH? Do you want to pay via a virtual card? Is that vendor in the US or is that vendor actually in the UK? How do you pay that vendor in the UK, right? And so, you know, that's what the, the tool itself brings as well. And obviously on the expense reimbursement side, it's important that our job as finance leaders is when an employee at our company spend money on company's behalf, our job is to get them their money back as fast as possible, right? That's the least we can do. There is a direct connection to morale if you don't pay folks back on time or quickly. And so, you know, how do you drive that process down from 30 to 45 days down to three or four business days? And then, as I mentioned, virtual and physical cards being the component there, which is that we see that companies, when they sign up with Airbase, they oftentimes, because we generally serve larger businesses, right? So what that means is that companies, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred employees, 2,000 employees, 4,000 employees, and those companies will generally have 90 to 95% of their spend on ACH or AP. And the reason being is that these larger companies have a bit of an aversion to physical cards, Right, Because you, you talk to a CFO of a public company, they would not feel comfortable if you went and gave every single employee at a company a physical card because there's no control. They feel like they've lost control. Well, with Airbase, you're able to deploy cards, physical or virtual, and still get the controls that you want. As an example, putting limits on card spend, right? being able to issue out to specific individuals or vendors for virtual cards. And so, as I mentioned, 90, 95% of spend happening on APACH. However, once you've adopted Airbase, we see that companies get to 30, 35% of their total spend on virtual or physical cards. That's because they're getting the control that they want and the efficiency that they want by using cards because you're spending less time of AP managers sending out payments. But you're also getting hard dollar value savings with cash back. Right. So you're able to put more AP onto virtual cards and that gives you literal hard dollar value savings. So each one of those modules, as I mentioned, you can say I describe it, but each one comes with a whole host of what we call value metrics or value props as to why it benefits the finance team as a whole. Okay, yeah, a lot, a lot there then. But I, I can see, so you're managing largely the sort of uh, purchase to pay uh, cycle there. Correct. And uh, we, we call it, you know, a modernized procure-to-pay solution. So does it involve uh, kind of pre-selection or approval of companies and products and, and things like that? Is that part of it? Or, you know, because, I mean, I, I'm just thinking in terms of setting something like this up, if you've got to do that, then is there a lot of sort of time spent up front investment? Or do you already have you know, preset, pre-configured kind of agreement sets with or, you know, suggested suppliers and things like this? 
Yeah. And so, you know, one of the unique pieces of why many prospects go with Airbase is that when there were there are legacy players that have been serving some of these, some of these call it pain points. Those legacy players up until now have been very costly and they've been very cumbersome to implement at time of adoption or a time of purchase. And so one of the value props for Airbase is that we can get you live and onboarded significantly faster. So think about it, a third of the time it takes to implement a legacy provider is the time it takes for Airbase to get live for you. During that onboarding process, yes, bringing on legacy vendors that you've historically already paid and uploading them into the Airbase system is definitely a part of it. That happens during onboarding. We also have a vendor portal, right? And so that vendor portal is where, you know, think about it as having the records for these vendors. So it's not like every Airbase customer for Salesforce is inputting Salesforce as a unique vendor every single time, right? And so we do have some of that automation built in as well. Yeah. And um, as I say, a lot of the spend being on cards now is probably because a lot of a lot of services purchased are going to be SaaS services and so on, which tend to be purchased using credit cards, don't they? Yeah. Think about all the marketing spend that happens through like Google and Facebook and all this social, et cetera. You know, up until now, I mean, we'll see how you know, card regulations or things transpire over the next 24, 36, 48 months. But largely, folks are not seeing a change in that in that uh, avenue that folks put that on cards. And I think uh, from what I was reading, just doing some research, was a lot of companies in the market that you're operating in started out more from the card end of things. You know, they provide a card provider and then they've maybe tried to You know, it's, it's, that. so, it's a, that's a unique perspective. And I'll say that, I wouldn't go as far as to say started from cards. I say that cards was one of the avenues that some of these companies have started from. That is very true. So many of the lower end providers that service SMB companies, so call it zero to 50 employees, many of those folks started with charge cards, right? Charge cards. And so that, think about that as, as a credit card, but with an auto payment date, an auto draw from your bank account at the end of the month right after a 30-day period, auto draw. So it's not really extending credit to you for like a, a you know, $10,000 bill, pay $100 now and pay the next $9,900 for the next, you know, 24 months. That's not what we're talking about. Charge cards are pay $10,000 in the month. At the end of the month, you literally auto pull from the, the customer's bank. They started from that charge card realm. There are other providers at the higher end that started from the AP realm, right, of AP automation. There are other players who started from the travel realm, right? So T&E. And so there are also players that started from the expense reimbursement realm first. So I think naturally what you're seeing is when folks are starting from one of these pockets, then they end up seeing that they need to get to this, quote, non-payroll spend, all non-payroll spend value prop for the system to be stickiest. And what I've loved about Airbase is that's always been the vision of Thajo, our founder here, uh, is that we are trying to consolidate all non-payroll spend. That's the game, period. And so what that means is that that really comes through in our UI UX and the adoption. So to service a mid-market company to early enterprise company as we do consistently day in, day out, 
it's not just about having the product breadth and the depth. Obviously, you've heard a bit about our breadth. And then the depth, right, being able to send payments to 200 countries, 190 plus currencies, right, being able to have multi-subsidiary support, being able to connect deeply into your ERPs, et cetera. That's the depth that's needed. That's one vertical in this space that has to just be a fact. You need to have the product breadth and depth because if you don't, you quite simply cannot capture all of that non-payroll spend. Right. If you don't have the depth on call it the international side, I can't capture your international spend. Right. So I think about it as all non-payroll spend. Then the next piece that's extremely important in this mid-market early enterprise, because these companies are not big enough to have 50 people, 60 people in AP, like hammering compliance at the business and telling folks, oh, you know what, run back to that company and get a PO. We need to reissue this whole thing with a PO and start this process over again. That works for like an Exxon or, or, or you know, a Facebook, these huge corporations. However, mid-market and early enterprise companies need it to just happen organically within the product. So what I mean by that is that the customer UI UX facing for the product needs to just work. And it doesn't, it cannot be something that has a hundred questions a day from your employees to your one to two or three AP managers at your business. And so it's that product breadth and depth coupled with the consumer grade UI UX is what enables us to get all of that non-payroll spend. Yeah, because I mean, the first principle of any software, if you want it to be successful, is that it's accepted by the users, isn't it? So Yeah, and I always say that finance teams can make a choice to adopt a software, right? I mean, it's an AP automation procure-to-pay tool. Within my organization, I have the right to actually look at the vendors out there. And ultimately, I'm the DRI, the, you know, call it the directly responsible individual for making that decision of the vendor. However, once finance makes a choice, it very much becomes something where go-to-market or R&D can force us to remove the tool if it's not working for them, right? So it's not just about selling the product on day one. It's about keeping the adoption happy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there about or alluded to the fact it must connect to a, a, a wide variety of other systems as well, particularly ERP systems, I presume, in being larger companies as well. So, yeah, it interacts directly with those, yeah. And now the other thing is you you handle client money, don't you, effectively, or customer money. So that presumably imposes various uh, regulatory requirements on you. Is, is that um, is that a feature? <laughs> it, so I would say the way we've approached it is a feature. And that is because we are in the business of trust. You can purchase the software, but if you don't trust us to pay your vendors, then the model's broken. And so for us, moving our customers' dollars, we take at the highest responsibility. We call it, we're steward, right? And so what that means is, you know, the, the ways that we secure dollars that are in flight through various instruments, whether it be money market funds or insured cash suite programs or whatever that may be, is all through the lens of securing as much of every dollar, if not every dollar, a customer pays out right? To its vendor. And so, yes, that is a big focus of ours. But we've also taken it one step further. And we've put in place, you know, a whole host of measures when it comes to risk and fraud monitoring. Right now, as I mentioned, Airbase, we serve larger companies. And so what that means is that when you go to larger companies, 80 to 85% of their spend is happening on AP, not on credit cards. And so 
right now what's happened, especially I think since this work from home phenom started, I mean, obviously everybody's always been remote only or remote first since company inception. However, since COVID was work from home and, and massively adopted, we've seen a huge increase of AP fraud. And so that is vendors being email fished and hacked and vendor payment details being changed. And AP managers end up sending out hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in fraudulent payments to not be able to get that dollars back, right? And so in that way, Airbase is very much almost like an insurance policy. And that is because we are monitoring the actions that are being taken throughout the platform. We are monitoring every single payment that is made. And so how are we able to, as an example, you know, call it a few weeks back, we're able to save a customer that was spending, call it tens of thousands ACV with us on the subscription, 40, 50K ACV on the subscription with us. That customer's vendor was email fish. So the call it the accounts receivable person at their vendor was email fished and they were able to gain access to their email on their systems and they changed the vendor payment details from call it some big bank to some small bank. I'm just giving you an innocuous example. $2 million. $2 million sent to that vendor. But Airbase, due to the monitoring that we have, was able to stop payment and pull back funds. Mm. Right? And so that doesn't mean we're going to be able to capture every single one of these situations, right? That's the goal. That's the, that's the North Star. But what we'll do is we're going to try to get as sophisticated as possible to help our customers in every way, shape, and form. Yeah, I mean, some of these phishing emails are so on are remarkably credible and, and believable, aren't they? So you can see how how that happens. It, it's I mean, it's crazy. There's like uh, at salesforce.com and one of the S's is a dollar sign. And so you'll notice like when you're going through things fast, right? And so there's there are the things we're doing for Airbase right, to monitor every payment, but there's also the things Airbase does to actually have, you know, approvals on vendor payment detail changes, right, and review of these types of things. And best practices, right, one of the best practices, you can call your vendor to validate, but what happens if that vendor was email fished and you're actually talking to the fraudster? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I guess you aim to have their number on file rather than and, and using from your own source rather than from the email. <laughs> right. Well, so, I mean, that, yeah, I can see that there's value in that alone, apart from all the other things it does. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, so that, that's really interesting kind of rundown. And, and you mentioned about, you know, if that country, if that company's in the UK, so presumably you're, you're uh, able to, to use Airbase in all, a lot of jurisdictions or all jurisdictions? Yes, jurisdictions? and so our customers are predominantly US headquarter based. Right. Mm -hmm. But they are companies that have international operations throughout the world. And so that means they may have a UK subsidiary that they need to fund so that they can make payments to vendors in the UK. Right. They may have a European, South Asian, Asian, whatever that may be. And obviously we're doing that in a compliant way. Right. Right now, AML and all those things are on the top of mind. And so the vendors that the, the, the rails that we work with, so our payment partners that we work with are definitely, you know, on top of all that as well as we are. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. Numeritas created this podcast as part of our mission to improve the way finance makes decisions. And I hope you find the conversations as useful and interesting as I do. 
We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or just talk privately about a forecasting or modelling challenge. Drop me a message through the contact form on our website at numeritas.co.uk and I'll get back to you. Now, back to the show. Okay, well, let's just move on to some more general areas. So, I mean, you've got experience in a number of software companies and mostly those that have been all growing very rapidly, haven't they? So I'm kind of interested to delve into the the sort of choice between a buy or build strategy in, in IT companies and software companies, because it would seem to me if you're uh, acquiring software companies and stitching them together, then that comes with quite a lot of potential headaches for integration uh, versus trying to build something from, you know, just from, from scratch and to become a dominant player in a market, which is a challenge because you know, everybody's in a bit of an arms race, aren't they, in, uh, in software to to stay ahead of the competition. So, so what, what's your experience been in, because you've, you've had a, possibly a mix of those, I think, in, in the companies you've been at, yeah? Yeah, you know, uniquely, I've been on, call it three sides of it. Right. And so... <laughs> As an advisor, right, to companies that are buying and selling themselves or buying businesses or selling their own business. I've been on the buy side of it multiple times at Guidewire. We bought, I think, five companies while I was there, as small as $10, $15 million tuck and acquisitions of great people or specific tech to call it a quarter billion dollar transaction that is hundreds of people and real revenue and a business to truly integrate. And the interesting piece is I will say that the smaller deals are actually more work for integration. (laughs) Yeah, right, yeah. (laughs) I think the interesting perspective I have on this is that you know, many corp dev teams just handle the transaction itself. And then after the transaction is done, the definitive agreement is signed. You know, you've officially closed the deal, which oftentimes happens months or up to maybe a year after you've announced the deal, right? That's why you see a deal get announced and say, so we aim to close it by the end of the year. We aim to close it in, in, by, in, in 12 months. Corp dev usually signs off and says, all right, we're done from here. I had an amazing experience at Guidewire because my team actually managed the entire post-merger integration efforts of every deal that we brought on. And so that's everything down to the facilities. Do we want to brand them Guidewire? By what date is it going to be Guidewire branded internally there? What Everything down to the food and the snacks, down to, and then more strategically, to the product. And when, wait, this date that we said in our M&A model said that we were going to have a co-branded product brought to market by this date. If we need to have the product done by this date, at what point do we need to start to enable the sales team and the field team and the broader marketing team on making a push on getting this product out there to the market externally so they understand it? And then at what point the sales team needs to be comp planned on it? How do we incentivize them to want to push this new product? And then monitor the issues and all that. So 99.9% of getting a deal done and it being successful is the post-merger integration effort. You know, the, I had a board, board member once at one of my companies who's a board member. He's a CEO for a public company multiple times over, board member for a few of the largest businesses in the world, software businesses in the world, who told me that 99% of the deals that he's been on have failed, m and deals. But he felt very strongly that at Guidewire, we were doing the right thing by getting very maniacal about the post-merger integration. So we used to create like a 400-page post-merger doc 
that literally looked at every avenue of post-merger, dates, et cetera, who's the DRI, who's going to own specific areas, and what are they signing up for to make this as successful as possible. Because the fact is, when you're buying a company, the numbers are stacked against you. And what I mean by that is IBM has a stat out there for every 100 companies you get into negotiations with and look at, you actually only buy one. And then if you actually assume that for every 100 companies you buy, for every 100 companies you buy, probably 5 to 10 are deemed truly successful based on the preconceived notions of the pre-merger or call it the, the pre-acquisition synergy model that we put together. Yeah, what actually achieving with the objectives. Yeah, the odds are stacked <laughs> against you. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It is very possible. And there have been very successful acquisitions, obviously. But we have to be maniacal about what this means to work together, bring the teams together, the culture, the morale, the product, the sales teams, the operations teams around making this a successful business plan. And so I give you that, that call it context on my experience with it, because it's not as easy as saying, let's just go buy this thing. And then it's all roses and it's great. But on the flip side of it, it's not as easy also as saying, let's just build it. Because there's a whole issue of time to market, product market fit. That takes time, right? Building a level of experience around an entire new product or module or offering that maybe another company has honed for quarters or years that takes time to really understand. And so when you do a build versus buy model, I know there's always the finance numbers that come into play, which are, you know, honestly, you could build a build versus buy model within weeks a really good one within weeks, a really back of the envelope one within a day or two. And that's sure. that even that back of the envelope may end up being 70, 30 correct. But then you really want to put pen to pencil. It'll take a few weeks to actually get, you know, to work with product, to understand what is it going to take to build this and engineering and blah, blah, blah. And then sales to when can we expect a real first sale out of this thing we build? And the point I'd say there is that there's no blanket right decision on build versus buy. It's context. And it oftentimes mm. comes down to what are we talking about? What product are we talking about? What industry are we talking about? And so, you know, I think that um, it's a heavy decision, but one that is most pertinent right now is obviously, you know, many company valuations are down. You're seeing a bunch of public companies being taken private. And obviously, you know, many of these businesses are running the math and running the numbers and they're saying, wait a minute, this company has built a product has hundreds or thousands of customers already that they're servicing. And they're happy because of X, Y, and Z. For us to be there, in reality, we're talking about two to three years from now, at which point this market may have sailed and the winners may have been picked. Yeah, and, and things will have moved on considerably. <laughs> so interesting that you talk about the context here, because I think Guidewire, it was providing software in insurance, wasn't it? And I think so probably... If I'm right, little discreet, I say little, but discreet um, service offerings or to different uh, segments of the insurance market. Unlike something where, I don't know, we'd say Mapbox, anything that you acquired may have been something you wanted to integrate into a single product effectively. So that, that obviously must have quite a big difference, yeah? Yeah, you know, Guidewire, each one of the deals we did was very different, actually. So, you know, the first deal we did, as we, we noticed that we wanted to implement Guidewire out of, like, as an example, a, you know, a top five, top 10 U.S. property and casualty insurer. 
And when we were doing that, it was taking almost a year and a half to implement and go live. We're talking about millions of dollars of onboarding expenses in ProServe. So not only the expense, but the time to value. Time to value was becoming an issue. So one of the first companies we bought, which by the way, the company, Godward never bought a company before I joined. So aligning the business and the board to even making our first acquisition took a bunch of effort, right? Because a newly public company, you announce your first acquisition, you, can be, you will be heavily scrutinized for it. And so getting that first one done already had this really high hurdle that we had to cross as a corp dev team. What I'll say is that the first deal we did was about time to value. So we bought a company that was an operational data store. So it was able to take customers' old mainframe data, as an example, and homogenize that data to a guidewire format that would get the customer live as a you know, random number half the time to value. Mm. And so that was a material thing, right? We're like, wait a minute, we can drive down implementation costs. We can drive down time to value. This is a huge value prop here. We need to get this company. So that was very successful. Mm. And then we went to, all right, how can we purchase a company that will drive better policy pricing data? So, you know, prior to example, a Guidewire uh, being implemented, it would, if you recall, 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't as easy as calling or, or sending your broker, insurance broker, a message and saying, hey, I just, I just got a new car. Please add it today. You would get a quote like a week or two later saying, here's your quote yeah. for your policy. Whereas with Guidewire, it happened within 15 minutes. And so the, 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 the idea there is that in that 15 minutes, the decision you make around what that price is for the premium is incredibly important. And so how can we take zip code data, last name data, credit data, all these types of things, bring them together to give you a very enriched policy pricing experience? Yeah, which we've come to expect now. But like you say, that that was uh, just not possible you know, going, going, going back a few years. Yeah. It was impossible. Then we looked at all kinds of things, <clears throat> right? We looked at a company that would, instead of having, um, you know, the biggest, the most expensive thing in PNC is your home usually. Right? That's mm -hmm. the most expensive thing. But, you know, average American, that's the most expensive thing that, that we own. And so how could we price a home policy faster? Well, oftentimes the roof is one of the biggest things. And back in the day, companies used to have to get on the roof. Your adjuster would come out and get on the roof to, to figure out, all right, how old is this thing? How good is it? Well, what if we can actually take aerial satellite scans? and use that yeah. to yeah. price it. So there's companies that are doing aerial satellite scans and then also now using drones. The drones are actually the most cost, more cost-effective way at times to do that, to get a state of a roof. So how can we get that data and push it into the system fast? So like I said, it's, it's varying. And then even the last deal we did at Guidewire was how can we take Guidewire to the cloud? It was an on-prem software solution. So we bought a company for a very large sum for Guidewire at the time and uh, said, we're going to go to the cloud. We need to go to the cloud. And years later, it's panning out. It's panning out for the business. So like I said, it, everything has a theme, but ultimately what that theme is, is how can I drive more value for my customer today? Or how can I expand my TAM, my total addressable market to bring on a different type of customer? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, interesting perspective. Thanks. Now, you mentioned your team is, in, and I think you slipped this in there just a minute, a minute ago, that your, your team is entirely remote or Airbase is entirely remote. So... How has that been uh, trying to, to manage a team 
that you rarely see. Oh, I mean, you must get together sometimes, I take it, but or maybe not. <laughs> you tell me what the challenges and uh, sort of solutions you found to, to managing that. So two things. One is that I've been working remote only now for almost five years, which is kind of crazy to think about it. I never thought. I'm someone who's like, I loved the office culture. I loved, you know, obviously investment banking, when I was doing investment banking, was not a work from home friendly culture. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you had to wait in the office until 3 a.m. to get your comments from a, your managing director who's on East Coast time and we're on West Coast. And, and so it was very much an office culture. And then moving to software side of things in an operator, I used to like the quarter ends, right? Where you have the sales team and you're all like, we got to hit this number and we need these last couple deals. It's just that, you know, that, 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 that mix. So I never thought that I would be one who would go to a remote only company, let alone five years ago, I joined Mattermost, which was remote only in 30 countries already. And it was a, it was a big learning for me to not just lead finance, but I led all of GNA for that company. So finance, legal, IT, people, and business systems, operations. And so what's it like to onboard folks in another country in an effective way? How do you mm. implement a culture that folks understand what it's like to work at, at, at then Mattermost, now Airbase? And so what I will say is that while I never thought that it would be something I would do, it is something that I've now, I'm just accustomed to doing it. And the difference I would say versus being work from home friendly in a remote first and remote only business is very, very large. And so it changes the type of profile we hire in every role. It changes how we onboard. It changes how we support from an IT perspective, getting a laptop to someone by day one. You'd be surprised how challenging that is, but we have you know, a good group of folks who focus on that internally here. It changes how we do all hands. It changes how much of a written culture we are. To be asynchronous, you need to be a written culture. And so talk, talk about your Notion pages or your wikis and all those things being enriched with, with a whole host of information. And so what I will say is that it takes a concerted effort across the leadership team to actually execute on it well. But if done well, it can be a force multiplier. And so there is no way that Airbase could have gotten to the scale that we are in today, revenue and customer-wise, without Thejo, our founder, having a very strong remote-only bias when starting the company. And so that means that our teams across the company and R&D, we have the majority of the teams in India that are just phenomenal, really strong performers. What it means is that we've been able to do it without burning seven, eight times more than what we should have cash burn side if we did this all out of San Francisco Bay Area. So it means that we can build a more impactful business to serve more customers in a more cost-efficient way and get access to talent that previously folks thought was a risk. And then I think what happened in the last five years is you've had companies like GitLab go public, right? Previous to GitLabs and call it um, the Atlassians and other folks and automatics getting to scale, remote only was kind of frowned upon in the VC community because they were like, how can you go public? There's so many risks. Like, how do you actually write the S1 for a company that's public and, and actually capture all the risks that entail? And so obviously, I think COVID expedited the world's acceptance of work from home. And then companies such as, you know, GitLabs that have gone public have proven that you can be a public company at scale and be remote only. 
Yeah, but you were already remote before COVID, right? Right from the start. So yeah, no, it was a challenge. And think about it: when I was running remote for uh, remote mm-hmm. only at a company called Mattermost five years ago, we didn't have Deal or Remote.com. These PEOs, these payment employment organizations that were kind of taking on all the risk and show like helping you contract through them to have them contract directly with you know, the folks you want to hire in other countries. I had to hire the VP of Legal, Jamie Hurwitz, from GitLab hire her away from GitLab and bring her on to be my VP of legal at Mattermost. So I can even understand where are we taking risks? As an example, like in countries like Spain, once you get to four or five employees in the country, they recommend you form a workforce union. In other countries like France, that number may be higher. So understanding all this regional context, I had to put that all in my brain because it didn't exist. There wasn't a resource you could go to who would capture all this risk and the profiles there for you. Now you have remote.com and deals, these com- D-E-E-L, these companies that are growing phenomenally because the demand for remote hiring is so high. There's a lot to think about there. That's right. Particularly if you're not actually forming entities, if you're just hiring people in, well, anywhere, but uh, all around the world, yeah. So your background was, like I say, originally to do with raising finance and so on, and you've done that I think a number of the companies you worked at. Another thing about tech companies is, you know, there's this, again, this sort of arms race to grow, to stay ahead of your competitors, which quite often seems to involve uh, having to go through multiple rounds of fundraising. Uh, what is there anything from that that's been, uh, that is worth sharing with, with our listeners? Yeah, I think that arms race is kind of a funny way of describing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard the term, I can't remember who it was I was listening to, but somebody else came up with the term, it's not mine. I haven't heard that before, but uh, it kind of resonates a little bit. And so Mm. what I will say is that to fight the urge to make it an arms race is very important. You know, Thejo, our CEO founder here, being a second time founder, he sold his last company for 100 plus million to SiriusXM. I'm sure he learned things in in that process. And so that's why our number one value here at the company is control your own destiny. To make it an arms race alludes to you're not controlling your own destiny, right? Because it, sure, mean, it yeah. alludes to you're chasing the tail. And so what that means is that does it, that doesn't mean don't be competitive. What it means is that at times to operate the company, like we companies used to be operated in the late 90s, mid 2000s, late 2000s, early 2010s, even around a level of, of fiscal responsibility and a level of pressure is a good thing. And, and I always say this, diamonds are made under pressure. Companies are too. And so it's good for a company to feel the pressure to operate. And it's also bad to unnecessarily dilute the business. And so there's a, ba- there's a balance there that needs to be found. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as you mentioned, my job has always been to, number one, be a steward of shareholder equity for the business, right? And the cash we have. And that involves weighing both the need for adding more funds and the need to maximize the current ones we have. So I think, look, we operate in competitive space here at Airbase. You know, it's been over two years since we've raised a round of funding and we still have many years of runway. And that is because, you know, we're able to focus on what do we prioritize to execute on today? Obviously, some of that is based on what do we see in the market? But a lot of that is based on what are we seeing in ourselves as a company. Our customers are showing us, our prospects are telling us and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, uh, so yeah, the arms race thing was was something I I picked up from somewhere else recently, and who's talking about uh, software companies' interest and get your perspective on it. Thanks. I think we pro- we probably need to draw it to a close now. And I usually ask about what sort of advice our guests have for uh, CFOs and senior finance people in terms of what uh, you know what you see on, in the next few months, and then maybe a slightly longer time horizon. Is there uh, some something that you'd like to share on that front? This time last year, as you can imagine with Airbase, we spent a lot of time with banks, right? Because that's how we move dollars, et cetera. We also want to stay close to the banking community to understand what type of regulations are coming, what kind of environment are we seeing, macro, micro, over the next 12 to 18 months. This time last year, 80% of the banks were saying 80% chance of a recession in the U.S. in calendar year 2023. That did not happen, right? I would actually argue there's probably pockets of recessions occurring, right? Commercial real estate or whatnot, and call it class A, class B office space, and maybe some other areas of software or whatnot. But those same banks are now up in the air about what's happening in 2024. You're telling me they're wrong again. Yeah, and the answer is that every three, four weeks, it feels like the market opens, then it kind of closes again. The public market's mm-hmm. open, and then they kind of close again. And right, right now, November was a month or a month of, oh, is it opening again? Is this like the beginning? You know, I think that the interesting piece is that right now, we as finance operators have to default to, like I said, controlling our own destiny as a company. A lot of people forget that. During the recession in 2007, 8, 9, Salesforce ground to a halt with their growth. We're talking about single to just above single digit growth. Mm -hmm. And they were able to look internally to figure out how do we focus the company to be the best version of itself. And when the market reopened, they had done all the tweaking needed under the engine, under the hood to then maximize probably a 10-year unprecedented level of, of economic growth. And so I think we're sitting in that period right now where companies are doing the necessary tweaks to figure out how we be, make our companies, how we can play a part in helping our companies become the best version of themselves in the hope that 2024, 2025 is the year things really start to turn. And then we kind of ride that wave on the back of focusing on unit economics at our companies over the last year and now focusing on margin and efficiencies to build a next wave of best-in-class software businesses. And that's where I believe it's that things are going. I think we're going to see that this correction was healthy. We're going to see that this correction actually made us better operators and made us, as everyone listening, finance operators, it strengthened or bolstered our seat at the table, which is healthy for the company's long-term value and growth. And so, you know, I'm excited to see where it does go over the next 12 to 18 months. But that's where I think it is going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, success is when you have preparation, meeting opportunity, and, you know, you just got to be ready, right? So use whatever lack time or or difficult times to uh to try to make the make the most of it and uh be ready for when things do pick up yeah good well well uh thanks very much for that and just to wrap up if people want to get in touch uh you're on linkedin so is that the best way 
LinkedIn is a good one. We also have a free Slack community that Airbase hosts called Off the Ledger that is free of solicitation of Airbase, the product, but it is a community of over, I think now, four and a half, five thousand 5,000 uh, finance professionals. And so it's a great free resource that folks can use to, to get a sense for some of the, the most pressing questions that finance operators are seeing right now and also to post questions that, that you're seeking answers to. And the one thing I didn't mention, actually, you're also a podcast host and uh, I think that's also on the Airbase website, isn't it? You go to Airbase, resources, and under resources, you'll see something called What I Wish I Knew. And every quarter or so, I host a, a podcast and, and try and bring on uh, leaders from different areas of companies or, or sectors. And I intentionally titled it What I Wish I Knew because 13, 14, 15 years ago, you couldn't just Google something. You kind of wish you knew something. And <laughs> nowadays, I'm hoping we have a lot more resources that we can provide to, to finance operators out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, uh, I'm sure that's worth a listen. So, uh... It just remains for me to say thank you for appearing on the Forward Thinking CFO. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. 